Well, hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Master the NEC. You know, the show that talks about the National Electrical Code and, of course, all things electrically related. My name is Paul Abernathy, your host, as always, and welcome to the podcast. So today we're going to kick off a multi-series uh, podcast episode uh, talking about residential and all the things that residential electricians do, the life and times of a residential electrician, you know, how we started our day. You might do it differently. Your company might be, depending on the size, do it a little differently. Uh, I will focus my efforts at a 10-person or less shop, kind of like a small size electrical contractor, that type of thing. Um, it's typically uh, where my company was for most of the career. I never got huge. Um, one, because I you know, wanted to keep it very controlled in what we did. Um, but again, at any given time, you have up to three trucks. So you have inside staff, you know, obviously, uh, you know, including myself. And you'll have, uh, you know, an electrician and a helper. Uh, or, you know, uh, it could, you know, most of the time, I was back in Virginia, so you only needed one master in the company, that was me, and you would hire electricians. Um, and then they didn't always have to be uh, licensed electricians, um, although you always would encourage them to get their license. Uh, but then you had helpers, and there's no licensing requirement for helpers uh, in the state of Virginia. So every state's a little different, so your rules might be different in your state than what they were maybe in my state. But we want to look at residential. Uh, and of course, in future series, we'll probably get into some commercial things as well. But we want to look at residential. And I just wanted to kind of give you the day in the life. If you're in this industry and you're thinking of getting into residential, you're an apprentice and you want to kind of, you're, you're excited about getting into this electrical trade, which is an amazing trade, by the way. Being an electrician is amazing. Um, there's so many avenues that you can go in in your career, um, whether you're working for somebody or you branch out and end up being your own boss. Maybe you want to keep it very controlled. You want to do just uh, just residential. Maybe you just want to get into service work. So you want to get, you know, there's a, there's a big market for people to get a nice van, stock it, get a helper, and then all y'all do is service work. And that's it. That's, that's all you do. And there is a great market for that. And you can do very well just doing service work. So that's kind of, there's, the, the sky's really the limit. And what you want to do, it's whatever you kind of put your mind to, and that's what you want to do. So for me, uh, it was residential wiring. Um, that was my main focus. Uh, now, I did really, really high-end houses, but I certainly wasn't going to shy away from the uh, the, the stick-built, uh, just plain old turnkey, uh, what we call spec houses, which, again, you're just wiring it up just to spec, just to code. The basic minimums, you know, all the, you know, six foot, 12 foots and uh, two foot, four foot countertop things, just the basic compliance with code. Um, and of course, that was, you know, our spec. And of course, you, you, you get that home where it's not spec, it's, it's custom. And sometimes a house would start out spec, but, you know, the owners would be identified and the next thing you know, it becomes custom. And that's great because you actually price started out pricing it as a spec with the builder. And then it gets sold, and if you're in the middle of the project, they bring in the owner, and everybody understands at this point there is one price for the spec. Now, as they start to customize it, the prices go up. You know, we, we customize. Now, uh, some contractors will do that based on added item, like per receptacle, per luminaire, per switch, whatever they do, uh, and then, um, you know, have fixed fees. 
And so we kind of did, once we got past, so we, I used to price everything uh, using an estimating software, even residential. Now, when I first started, I, I didn't. I had to come up with a, a value per square foot, and depending on the size of the home, it was just simply this value. And, and again, I'm, I'm reaching because it's when I first started out and I did the square foot value, it, I'm trying to think it was 4 5 $6 per square foot or something like that. I, I can't remember because uh, I rapidly ended up using a software and I used uh, Conest, and I customized it so that um, it was easier for me to even residential to put it in there. Now, that's not to tell you that's the way to do it. That's just kind of the way I did it. And But when I started out, it was you know easier to just do, you know, and I, and I was lucky because I had a, my brother who had, you know, about four, five, six years more experience than me when it came to pricing and things like that. So I could kind of lean on him. And so that's why I help other people because they can lean on me because I, I talk about the benefits of uh, or the advantages and disadvantages of different pricing methods, whether it's per square foot method, per device method, um, whether it's uh, uh, just a, a thumb uh, rule of thumb method where you've done one and you know what your profits are and what you made and you compare it to the next one and you're like, well, this is very similar. This is what I charged. This is what I made. There's different ways to do it, okay, and, and when you're pricing. So you want to find out what's comfortable for you. You're going to make mistakes. Everybody makes mistakes. You're going to do a job where you you uh, break even or you make a little bit, you know. Uh, hopefully you're accounting for your material. You're marking up your material. You're, you're being aware of the burden. And obviously if it's just you working uh, or you're a helper or just you, once you start really small, um, then the mistakes aren't as uh, is grand. In other words, you, you don't have a bigger loss. Of course, again, this is your money. This is your livelihood. So you, you, you don't want to be priced out of the market, but you don't want to be so priced under it that you don't make anything and you're just basically getting by. Now, some of the larger companies will price things when times get lean just to keep their employees working. So they'll pay their burdens, their overheads and the employee costs and, and very little uh, and because they're doing in bulk and they're just trying to keep people working. But when you're a small shop, you can't do that. You have to make money, but you know you also can't price yourself out of the market. So coming up with a pricing scheme for you uh, and what you feel comfortable with is very much uh, tailored to what your needs are. Uh, for me, I learned really quickly that pricing per square foot would screw me uh, on smaller projects, uh, but it could be beneficial on larger projects. So I wanted to get rid of that, that up and down in my pricing, and I wanted to keep it very consistent. So when I ended up going into an editing software, um, I spent enough time to realize, okay, um, I need to lay out and make sure that that I have every little component that I need built into it. And there's, so there's some systems today that are already like that. Uh, there's one estimating software, and again, please don't email me about which one I recommend. Um, I'm just going to tell you, there's one that's called Best Bid Hybrid Pro. Go search for it. Again, it's Best Bid Hybrid Pro. Um, the guy that created that software, it's a very small company. He, he's, he writes it all himself, uh, writes the program, does everything very much himself. The customer service is by him, um, and I like that. Um, but it is an amazing estimating software, and he's got one that's just for residential, but you can tailor it, you know, either or. So check them out, Best Bid Hybrid Pro. Uh, great guy check him out and look at their software. The point being is that 
all of these estimating softwares can be tailored, whether it's a small job or big job. Now, if you're just doing things like like Jay, who's a co-host with me over on Electrician Live, you know, Jay's doing basements, and he's doing really high-end basements. If you do enough basements, it, you can figure out what your happy space is. Because typically, they're probably not doing new services in there. They may be adding a remote distribution panel. You know what your hard costs are. Um, and again, you're, you're not typically doing a lot of the things like uh, ranges and dryers. I mean, you just generally general use receptacle applications. Other things to remember is, a co- obviously, in the code, the 3VA per square foot also covers general use in a basement. So even if it's unfinished, if it's adaptable for future use, the code tells us that we have to account for that in our square footage. And so all of that comes together when we're sizing the service. So that's already taken care of. Now, if I have some kind of special loads down there that are unique, um, like maybe it didn't have heating down there, so now I have to put baseboard heat. Now, that's a unique load. I have to take that into account. That is not factored into the 3VA per square footage for the lighting and general use uh, receptacle. So I mean, you know this. So you have to take into account, and that could result in having to put a remote distribution panel in, uh, or, or maybe it's just more trouble getting all of these brand circuits back to the, the main panel. So um, it, maybe it's easier to get a, a feeder there than it is to get all of these brand circuits there. So that dictates what you do. So as an electrician, we have to think about all these things up front. So that's why I have to start with the estimating. And again, no matter how you do it, that's where you really kind of start. And you'll get better at it. Um, you might not be great at it to start with. And again, you might break even. But remember, if you gouge yourself out of the market, uh, then you're not going to get the work. And if you're too cheap, you're going to get a lot of work, but you're not going to make any money. So you have to balance that. If you just want to be busy, uh, then try to come up with a method in between. I'm not here to tell you which way is better than the other. I just found out that as I progressed to bigger homes um, and I still took on the smaller homes, the spec homes, um, that if I stayed in one square footage mode, I ended up screwing myself based on the range of homes that I was interested in. Um, so, and then of course, if you have an estimating software, if you do some commercial, again, obviously it's an easy transition. And once you learn it, it's like I tell people with code. So people ask me, should I study for a master's and study for a journeyman? If I'm getting a journeyman, is your exam preps, for example, tailored? And I'm like, why are you worried about that? Um, code is code. So just, just learn the code and you don't have to worry about it because the code's the code. The code doesn't care whether you're studying for a journeyman or master. The only difference is from a master, you'll probably get more motor stuff. Things like that. But again, at the end of the day, shouldn't you know how to do that anyway? Yeah. So what's the big deal? Um, so again, don't fall for those crap that people try to break it into two different things. I don't, you know, nothing against the people. I'm just saying that's, that's a fallacy. Code is code. Um, anyway, so you start with your estimating. Now, in, a, in the day in the life of an electrician, um, so I would start out, you know, everybody's different, but I would be, get up around 6 a.m. and get to the shop. Uh, around 6.40, uh, get in, get in the office, kind of sit down, and my guys would start arriving. They'd get there at about 7 o'clock. And now, depending on your shop, now, our shop starting out wasn't large enough to be a warehouse shop. I mean, I could store stuff there like NMBs and, and boxes, and it just it didn't have the space for it. Um, because most people know that when I started my contracting business, when me and my brother started uh, back AA Electric, uh, we worked out of a van, right? We didn't. We worked out of my, my parents' house. We had the basement. We, we didn't have anywhere to store anything. Now, we did have a shed in the back that we would keep some stuff, but we didn't really have anything. So we kind of worked uh, from job to job to job. Uh, and as we started getting more and more popular, that became a little more difficult 
to do because, again, it meant a lot of trips to supply houses. And again, when you're not working, you're not making money. You, you have a lot of downtime. And so you, there is a point where every shop uh, gets to a certain size where you have to start thinking about uh, what is the common stuff. A residential is pretty common, okay? Uh, Two-gang boxes, three-gang boxes, nail plates, staples, NMB if you can buy it in bulk. Again, supply houses usually are, that's a loss leader. They're just trying to get rid of the NMB, so you buy it at a really great price that you're probably going to play more at a supply house unless you're a preferred um, uh, customer. It means that you buy enough that you get some kind of different tier pricing. Um, and again, I wasn't loyal to a supply house. I know people might like that or not, but I wasn't wherever I could get the best deal because again, the margins are where I made my money. Um, so, but again, you're going up against these. And back in the day when we were doing it, we're going up against those companies like uh, back in Virginia, Charlottesville area, you know, Robertson electric and uh, W Brown and things like that. No, they're buying in massive bulk. So again, um, we're, we couldn't buy in massive bulk. So, you know, they're buying 50,000 feet of NMB and warehousing it. Where we couldn't do that. We're, we're buying from job to job. So we bid a job. We, we, we go and buy the material that we need for that job. Um, and we're certainly not going to outlay any money before we win the job or get the job. Uh, because, again, that we might not get the job. And then this is going to sit around. And some people say, yeah, but you're going to use it at some time. Yeah, that's that old saying where people say, hey, buy something that's a tax write-off. Yeah, but I still got to pay for it now. If I don't have the money now, what does it matter if I'm going to get a tax write-off? I mean, I'm going to get the tax write-off anyway when I ultimately buy something. But if I'm not going to put the cash out now, I, I can't afford it. I don't, I don't have it to do that. So, again, when you're starting out, that's very much a reality. You know, if you're a bigger company, that's obviously different. But we're kind of, again, remember, we're setting the premise here for a smaller company. A lot of you out there that are wondering what happens in a smaller company as you're trying to get started. Now, as you get bigger, some of these things take care of themselves, obviously, warehousing and people and somebody to manage it and all that. But when you're starting out, you really don't have that. You are your manager, your office person, your, your boss, your lead man, your, you know, you're everything. You're wearing all these hats, and you're putting in a lot more hours than you did when you just worked for somebody. But you're working for a common goal. It's, it's your company. It's, it's your direction, right? And I always like to give the feeling to the employees that it, they had a stake in it. You know? And, you know, interesting enough, you could come up with some kind of stock that's not real, but it's a percentage of stock based on your profits for that month that you could share with your employees based on how long they're with you. And that's a neat concept that a lot of people don't do, um, is that I could create a fictitious stock that I give to all my employees and say, okay, you're new as a helper, you get this much of the profits, this much profit. You know, you got to be very controlled and you got to give it a lot of thought. Maybe it's a, it has a cap amount, okay, a cap, so that you don't say they get 5% on all of your profits, but you come up with something. So say there's a pool of over a certain amount that you make in a month profit, this goes into a pool and it's shared with the employees based on how long they're with you and their hierarchy of importance. You know, in other words, you know, masters versus journeymen versus apprentices, but at least they have a stake in the company. So if they're really in tune with the bottom line and they're part of a team with you, 
then they can benefit the end result. So that's a neat concept that I talk about in my master class uh, about how to share the wealth with your employees to make them feel involved. And they are involved, right? There, there are stakeholders in your company's growth, and there's a way to do that. And again, you can cap it, and it's just a way to do it. That cre- And as you get bigger, that money's going to get bigger. And those employees are going to say, hey, this is kind of like the stock market in a sense they're getting returns based on their percentage for how long they stay with you, their loyalty, uh, how long they stay out of trouble. And you can even create a demerit system. Uh, it could be interesting. But again, totally up to you how you run your business. But I want to keep the employees invested in it. All right. So anyway, I, again, you got to forgive me because I get off topic. Uh, and, and I had somebody comment on one of my videos as you jump all over the place, Paul. I understand. I'm sorry, I can't fix that. That is how I am. That is my nature. People say, well, if you follow a script, I'm I'm not going to do it. So stop commenting on it. This is what you're going to get. If you don't like it, you don't have to listen. And I don't mean that negatively and like an a-hole. I'm just, I'm here to help. I'm here to give you my experiences. I've been doing this over 30 years. I've helped thousands of electricians and, and I've been a mentor to many companies. I'm just trying to share information. All right, so let's get back to the topic. So once you get past that estimating hurdle and you you create the method that's comfortable for you, and again, it's going to be a hit or miss until you get comfortable, Um, and your way might be different. So you might do, again, estimate based on square footage. You might do it based on per item. You might do it based on an estimating software. Uh, You might do it rule of thumb based on what you did on a previous one. Maybe you guessed at it and you (laughs) ended up doing okay. Then, you know, however you do it, you need to formulate a method. Now, again, so my guys would come in. I'd get a little early. They'd get there. Uh, they'd be there at 7 o'clock. We'd have a little meeting in the morning. Always have the little meeting uh, again. In, uh, and then they'd head out. And the first thing that they would do, you know, when you're small, again, you can relate this to, you know, me and my brother would have our own little meetings, but when it was just us starting out. Um, but you could go, they go to Supply House or, or, and determine what the course of action is they need for today, what to get at the Supply House, or did they need to stop by the, uh, the um, uh, big box store prior, okay, and buy a bunch of wire or whatever they need to get, depending on the prices, all right? Uh, and I was always blessed because uh, my brother would always check the prices, uh, and now you have everything on your phone, so you can just go to look at the big box store and see what the prices are. Uh, and again, some of these softwares, even like the uh, uh, Best Bid Hybrid Pro, has a feature that actually updates and knows what the average price is and can plug things in. But you got to be in tune. That's what you're doing as the owner. You, you got to kind of be in tune with pricing. But I'm just giving you the, what we would do at the time. Um, and again, it's advanced now than it used to be. Uh, we would literally go and uh, plan what we were going to do. Say, okay, we got to stop by the uh, supply house, but we needed to run by Lowe's because they're disconnects. So maybe we needed a uh, disconnect because we're going to do a remote distribution panel in the house. Um, and because of where the service is going to come in based on the power company, we needed to put a disconnect so that we can change it over from service conductors to feeders because they wanted the panel at a different location than right against the exterior wall or something. So if that was the case, then we used to be able to find our disconnects, 200 amp disconnects, cheaper at the big box stores uh, like um, Home Depot or Lowe's than we would at the supply house because we weren't a volume buyer. So in some cases, this would be as much as $30, $40, $50. To me, that's a bottom line. That pays a, uh, back then, that pays two hours of electrician's work. Now it's changed, obviously, but 
then. That's the kind of way we thought about it. I also used to think about anything that we would do that would cost us money, it would equate to a dinner. Okay, back then, if you took your wife out to dinner, it's 45 bucks, now it's 100 But then I would say, God, I'm saving enough for a dinner. That's big, especially when you're a small shop. So that's how I used to mentality think. Now, you can't think that way big, but that's how I used to think. So I would go get the disconnects, and then because we would route it, and then you'd head to the supply house. So sometimes, you know, you start at, you know, 7. We wouldn't get out your shop until about 7.30, um, you know, Routine. Now, some people start earlier. This is just how we did it. Uh, and then so by the time you get to a job site or house, um, it, it could be as much as 8.30 to even 9 o'clock. And you're thinking, well, you know, you've already, you know, pissed away a lot of your morning. And, and, and that's true. So the people that there, – there's some people that actually would go to work early and then they would cut out early and pick up the stuff at the supply house in the evening – so that it had everything ready for the next day. And if you're blessed enough to have somebody that works in your company that can do pick up the material and deliver it to your site, that's even better. Okay, Because the quicker you can get your guys or get yourself onto that site, the quicker you can get started, obviously. But you're going to have to work that out. Um, but I'm just telling you how we used to do it. We literally, um, you couldn't get us up any earlier than that, and you'd be pulling teeth to get my brother up any earlier than that. He's not a morning person. Um, but again... By the time we got to the job site, say about, you know, 8.45, 9. Uh, so once you get to the job site, we just take a standard dwelling, even if it's a spec. Let's just talk a spec. This obviously didn't, you know, we're not talking about some of the multi-million dollar homes that we did, but just a spec. Um, the first thing we do is when we get there, we're setting up whether or not we have power there. Uh, they have temporary power uh, if not, you know, generators, we have to make that decision. Obviously, we have to know that so we can either have our generators or whatnot going. Um, and then, of course, the first thing that we would have, we would do is, you know, we have always have, have a helper or if it's me and my brother, uh, we would get there. We have our tasks. Uh, but as I got bigger in the company, I had we had a kind of a flow, if you will. So you get to the site. Uh, and the first thing that the, the, the master would do is, or the lead guy, I shouldn't say master, could be the journeyman, they would go into the dwelling with their ruler, and we used to have sticks, um, I shouldn't say, it was like, you know, dowels, the, the round sticks, and on that stick we had different markings of electrical tape, colors, I had one was marking, and it had written on a sharpie on the tape, one was, you know, 50 inches, then we'd have one marked at 18 inches, then we would have marked at different heights, Okay. And every guy had one. We started out with that one. If you forgot it a day or something like that, then, again, you just go in with your rule or your tape rule. But um, a lot of times we had these sticks and marking it. It's kept in the truck, kind of like colleges have those paddles. We had these sticks. And you would denote the heights on the sticks. Um, so you would go in, and you know, that, why, that way everything was pretty consistent. Right, and so I could have this, and then I didn't have to worry about my guys. As you're smaller or even get bigger, like okay, all of our switches go at 50 inches to the top. Um, all of our receptacles go at uh, 16 inches to the top or 18 inches to the top. Uh, whatever you wanted uh, or whatever the request is, um, and I think even later we had some stuff that was marked for ADA case it was necessary for ADA but at the end of the day you can customize this stick and again you know it's pretty rugged but again it, it had 
common heights on it so that everybody was consistent. So if I told my helper to go put a receptacle over there, I didn't have to worry. Now, some people use their hammer. Some people use whatever. They, you know, they have a rule of how they do it. Um, but we just always had this stick. Uh, now, if you're in a pinch, you're not going to grab your stick. You just go over with your ruler, pull it out 16 inches or 18 inches, whatever you do, and mark it. Do your little straight line and then the hash up to let you know which side of the stud it's going to go on. So you draw the straight line across, and then if you want it to be on the right, you start at the point on the right, and you do a little you know, little slash upwards. So that lets you know that it goes on the right side of that stud. Um, and then, of course, if we had to scab out, we would do that. But then on the side of the stud, we would put uh, an X. And the X would be depending on how many scabs we needed. We'd do two X's if I wanted them to scab it out, two scabs, one X if it's one scab, uh, things like that. Some people draw a square or whatever. Anyway, that's kind of our un, you know, uh, you know, on-site language, if you will, that you generate with your helper. So, so anyway, so the first thing we would do typically, I would do, is when I got to the site, you know, I'm going to go in with my stick or my ruler, however you want to do it. I'm heading into the project. Um, and if it's a spec home, um, going into it, uh, now if there, if this is a custom home, I've already had a pre-meeting with the owners. I've had a pre-meeting with the builder and I've walked around around and wanted to know if there's anything special they want. Okay. Um, where they want certain things, because I want to do that also, uh, before I price anything, because I don't want to price something as a spec and then turn around and now it's custom. That's why I said if it started out as a spec and ended up custom, then I could add extra costs on it because, again, it's adding extra items. Um, but when it's a custom, I already know this up front, and you just have to work the timing out. If you're going to bid the price, make sure you're, you know you know. And, and a lot of times, because the, the builder may not want you to meet with the owner so many times, um, they'll have already have a plan written, and they'll have marked anything special that they want on there. Um, but again, it, it, it differs. When I dealt with it, most of the time um, I met with the contractor and I met with the owner to make sure that we were all on the same page. I'd have a set of the drawings, uh, which again is a not always a luxury when it comes to specs, but it is usually for custom. And I would mark it on there and they would, they would have to agree with everything layout. And I'd say, okay, we all in agreeance. Yes. Okay, good. And then I can, you know, I can do it that way. Um, you're going to find different ways to do it, but that's kind of how I did it. Now, lucky for me, as I got more uh, well-known as a company and we started doing really good work, we took a lot of passion in our work, um, I actually started getting drawings from the builders, the ones that were, I would say, my preferred builders. Um, I would get drawings that would already have placements on it of anything that was unique to the owner. So they obviously had meetings ahead of time. You don't always get that luxury. So but we're going to talk about what, what I would do if it was just a spec home, just a basic spec home, maybe 2,500 square foot spec home or something. So anyway, I get to the job site. I'm, you know, I'm ready. Um, and so for me, I'm heading in to start laying out the, the actual dwelling. And my helper is starting to bring the stuff that's necessary for the project, Right. That's the more important part. So for them is, okay, get the generators out. Get the cords out. If we're not using cordless, and back then it wasn't. Everything was the Milwaukee extended bit with the short auger on the end um, because I could drill holes through the ceiling joists without having to use a ladder, uh, which makes everything easy. Um, 
And so, again, some people today will use cordless for everything. And, again, um, and I've used it for some small additions and basements and things like that, which works out great. But an entire house, um, you know, still, it's, it's hard for me to get away from using the corded stuff. Anyway, just the Milwaukee power. Again, my, my co-host on Electrician Live will love me saying Milwaukee. Uh, but again, I, I, I have to admit, I always use my Milwaukee uh, right angle with the extended arm on it. Uh, and the, uh, again, the auger bit on the end, the short, like six inch auger bit, beautiful thing. Just tear through some studs, buddy. Uh, anyway, so I would get into that site while my helper is being very efficient, is loading the generator, if that, or if it's power, uh, temporary power on site. Is running the extension cords in, uh, running them to the, uh, a box that we would have that would have something like four or six receptacles in it, um, and again, because and then we'd have extension cords there that we could come off of that central point. Um, so he would be getting everything set up, and uh, and also bringing in while I'm laying it off, he's going to bring in the the boxes, single gang boxes. Um, he's going to bring, and usually I just buy those in a carton. To be honest with you. Um, and because again, you're going to use those. So I would, I would buy those in the cartons. Uh, and then of course we have a boxes that we would have that have a, uh, a select group of two gangs and three gangs and four gangs and things like that. And so he would bring that in and we pick one area in the house and usually it's a very controlled area, maybe like the laundry room or, or something like that, which is again, the laundry room is just an open room. If we had one or one of the bedrooms over in the corner, which was, our electrical place, okay? That's where we were putting all the equipment so that we didn't have stuff strung out all over the site. And, of course, we're obviously going to pick locations that are not going to be where the plumber puts his stuff if, if they're there or the mechanical guy. I mean, we want to stay away, okay? We want to stay where we were at in our own space. So we would identify a space for that, and we would start. because So if I needed to get something, I know that if I sent my helper or I went out to the truck and I said bring it in, I didn't have to question where it was at, right? I know it's going to be in that certain area of the site. Again, you can underestimate confusion on a site, even a small project. But if you keep things kind of uniformed, and it just kind of keeps things rolling. can call it anal if you want, but it's the way we kind of did it. So anyway, everything's there. You load everything there, extension cords there that we necessarily need, uh, all right there. Um, and so if, if there's any two-by-fours that needed to be cut for scabs or anything like that, we had to scab out the stud because of where the box needed to be. Um, everything would be done in that area, um, and so we'd look for, you know, I'd have my helper doing these things, looking for extra scrap studs, things like that, but because the first part of the project is really getting what I need there. Now, so I'm going to start out. Now, I was kind of weird in the way that I laid out a house. Um, when I went in the house, I would actually start from left to right and clockwise move uh, around the room, but I always started in the upper floor, and I would start upper, and we always moved down, so I would come in, I would have it, uh, everything's loaded down on the first floor in a specific location, and then I would go up to the second floor, and I'd start my, uh, my study, you know, laying it out, marking things, switches, receptacles, vanity lights, you know, things like that, I'd start marking it out, laying it out, and of course, I had my little stick with me, um, or ruler, depending on, you know, whether I forgot something or not. And so we're laying it out, and once the, the helper gets everything in to the site, then everything's in that room. So now when I go upstairs, I usually tell him to transition next 
into once you get it's not a whole lot you're getting in so it, you know you park close as you can to the to the site um and once they know they would just know that once they get everything loaded in the boxes in there then they would start realizing that now i need to take a certain amount of things upstairs all right so we always had an extra box that was just empty box all right and you know it could be you know whatever box that something else came in maybe it was one of the box that the other uh um, uh, one of the other uh, nail-up boxes came in, or whatever, empty box. I'd always keep one. And so I would say just throw in about 20 or 30 single gangs, throw in some two gangs, throw in some three gangs. And once they got everything set up downstairs and they were pretty comfortable with it, then they would take that box of, of, of just things thrown into it, uh, ceiling light boxes, fan boxes, just throw it all in a box. They would take it upstairs. And so by the time that they would get that going, uh, I would be upstairs and I would have moved clockwise around the actual upstairs. So all of my markings are, are going to be uh, on, the, on the studs already. Okay. If I had to lay out any recess cans or anything like that, it would already be uh, laid out. Okay. And so when they can come up, they would, they would know to just start coming in. Now, one of the things that I used to teach them, and you can, you know, everybody's different. But one thing I, for efficiency, when they would take it, I would tell them to take that box up there, start out at the first room uh, uh, as you go on the left, as you're going counterclockwise. And I wasn't doing it for any Zen reason. I wasn't doing it for anything that's, you know, it's more efficient to always go to the right. No, it's just the way I did it. You can do it differently. Um, but I would say they would come up and with that box, they would hit the begin at the entrance of every room. And they kind of know, they could see the marks on the wall, and they would just kind of toss out a box roughly in the area of where the, the, the mark was on the studs. So it would toss one to the left, toss one. These boxes are sturdy, trust me. They'd toss one there, toss one there. So all the boxes would be laying on the floor, and if there's a switch right there, they'd drop a two-gang or a single-gang, whatever it is there, and they would slide the box to the next room and throw them out. So as I'm laying it out, they're coming behind me, and they're throwing the boxes. Now, the reason to do that is because I'm going to help with these boxes if, there's, if they're already laying there and I'm done marking, right? But in the process, I always want to keep the helper moving. So I'm laying everything out. Now, I might end up going down to the first floor, right? And they're still up there. And so then once they've thrown out and they've got the boxes, now a granite, you know, nothing's perfect. So they end up running out of boxes. They, they run downstairs and throw some more boxes in it and bring them up. Um, but they're going to go through it. And once they finish throwing them out where, or dropping them wherever they need to be, people say, well, while you're there, why aren't you going to nail it up? No, no, just that's my process. You can do yours different. But I would throw them out so that the boxes are out near and close proximity to wherever the marks were. And then once they did all that, they immediately would go back to the beginning and start nailing up all these boxes. And they just worked their way clockwise around, nailing up all the boxes uh, up. And, of course, at that point, I might have marked everything or it might have slowed me down because I've got some ceiling fans and i got to measure out the room to make sure it's in the center and maybe I have to cut some, uh, make some marks for him to cut some scabs or whatever and um, things like that. Um, but usually they can lay out the room pretty quickly. Uh, and if there's any specialty things that we got to come back and do together, uh, that's fine. But that's the general way I would lay it out. And then I'd move downstairs and I'd start the same process and I would be laying it out. 
everything out, measuring it off and everything. And so once they finish nailing up everything upstairs that they can nail up, you know, maybe we don't do the ceiling boxes just yet if we got to scab something or put it in a fan box. Then they would come down and they would do the exact same thing as they did upstairs. They would throw out the boxes. Again, use common sense. You know, you're at the entrance of the room. You just kind of shuffle it across the floor to close proximity to wherever the line is or wherever the marking is on the stud. Uh, you're going to use a, a black Sharpie or something that's going to stick out. And, you know, and so they're following kind of behind me. And then as I move through, then they're going to start nailing nail boxes. Now, when I'm done marking, I'm going to follow behind my helper and, you know, I'm going to start nailing up any boxes or chime in there with them and start nailing up boxes together so that we can make sure that we've got all the stuff nailed up, okay? And so we've got everything nailed up and everything's laid out. Um, And, again, while I'm doing that, I'm checking to make sure that they're, you know, still following our line and everything's good. Um, And then once we do all that, you know, they had already brought in the drills and everything is ready there. Okay. So everything is good. So once we do all the layouts and everything looks good, um, we will at that point, typically what I would do is address all those specialty things. Um, like again, ceiling fan placements in the boxes. And, and at that point, um, if there's any, uh, scabs that needed to be done for sealing or, or, you know, any two by fours that needed to for bracing or something, anything that we needed to do at that point. I always wanted to make sure I had all the boxes up, everything up and that type of thing. Now, let me step back a second. I also remember that as I'm walking around making these marks, it was so important for me to make sure that on the stud above the switches that I would put, whether it's a single pole or a three way or two single poles uh, things like that. So an S or an S3 or an S4, if it's a four-way, uh, you know, all of those those things gave a message. Now, of course, if I was switching any receptacles in that room, then above that receptacle, um, I would put a half symbol if I'm switching half of it, for example. Um, those type of things. Uh, and um, it's just, you know, just kind of, making sure we're all, you know, everybody's on the same page and giving as much communication as possible as I'm working, you know, working around the room. That's kind of how I would do it. So, we're again, we're all working together as a team. Uh, and I'll be honest with you, after a while, it became a really, really well-oiled machine so that nobody had any wasted, wasted time on a project, really. Um so anyway, once we did that and laid everything out and we did all the specialties, I mean, again, uh, making sure all the, the ceiling fans and everything was good, then we get to the point where we're going to start drilling. Now, there's two courses of thought here when it comes to drilling the holes uh, to pull our NMB through. Um, now, my brother was amazing at being very efficient, okay? Uh, very efficient in his drilling. In other words... If you have to drill around the room, and of course I should say this too, once that was done, I would then we would take the wire that's necessary, you know, a couple reels of uh, 14.2, a reel or two of 14.3, take it upstairs uh, and keep it there, press central location, anywhere you really want up there because we're using that wire. Um, And of course I had reel jockeys, uh, the little discs that you actually hang on to the stud that you can put your reel on so it just pulled so much easier. Um, I had those actually uh, hung on on the actual studs rather than sit on the floor. 
because uh, so it's easy to move it anywhere. Um, so I had that, and we would get that all set up, and I would always start my drilling in the same manner that I laid out the house, right? And also, as I was laying it out, I was very much conscious of where I was going to run my home runs. Where are they going to be? Whether they're going to be in the switches, whether they're going to be in the receptacles. But I always made sure that I knew where my panel's going to be. And so I tried to always think about the shortest home run possible. So I didn't really care, to be honest with you, whether I hit switches. People say they sometimes hit switches for uniformity, for service later, coming back. I never really cared too much about that because I'm going to do it right the first time. I don't really worry about that. With me, you can always know that I was going to run to the closest point back to the home run. So that was kind of my thing. might not be yours, but it was mine. So there was always a certain receptacle in the room that was going to be the closest and that would be my home run. So when I'm laying it out, for example, I'd put uh, some type of mark, an H or whatever, on that stud to let know that that's the home run. So in the mind, when you're looping your room or you're, you're looping all of your devices together, all these boxes, um, you know where your common home run's going to be so that you don't accidentally leave something that's stranded and it's not fed. That, that's, a, that's a nightmare for an electrician is to wire up something and then realize that you didn't feed something and now it's dead, right? Because you know it, you don't really, you don't, most of us don't test it. You, you rough it in and then it gets, you know, gets sheet rocked and then you come back and God, imagine the nightmare. And knock on wood, in all of my career, and I did a lot of home, I was a busy electrician for the first about 15 years of, of my electrical career. I did not run into a case where I'd, I uh, left a stranded uh, uh, branch. And that would be a nightmare, right? But the reason is, is because I was methodical in making sure I always picked my home runs out. And I had kind of a game plan. And you do it so often, you, you, you kind of know what you're looping around. And you can kind of see how things are all coming together. Now, again, I didn't care about the, uh, the issue of using multi-wire brand circuits. I had no problem with it. But I didn't use it an awful lot. Uh, whereas I run a 14.3 and use a red for one circuit and a black for the other and share the neutral. I mean, it's perfectly fine, uh, but I didn't really do that that often. It wasn't a common thing for me to do. Now, doesn't mean it's wrong. I mean, if I have a small um, spec house and I have two bedrooms that are in the very back, right, then that might be one way to do it. But then, of course, when you do that, you have other things that you have to think about the consideration, you know, AFCIs and how you're dealing with it. So most of the time, I you know, didn't give that much thought. I just ran dedicated circuits and, and I knew what I was going to put on one circuit versus the other circuit. Okay. I just kind of, kind of the way it worked out for me. So I, my home runs were always going to be closest to get to the panel location again. Um, and of course, other things that you have to take into consideration is, how am I going to get from that receptacle or switch? If the switch happened to be closest, if it was a two-gang switch, and that happens to be closest to the home run, I might feed that. It really didn't dictate either way. But for me, I also had to look and say, well, you know, did I have to go through any um, big uh, beams or anything, laminated beams, if I went this way or that way, or what's the best route that I have? So as an electrician, you know, you know this, this is why you're skilled. 
Because you can walk in. When I walk into a dwelling, man, I'm always looking around saying, mm, okay, this is the way the ceiling joists run. That's going to be nice for home runs. Or, you know, you're you you know, you, you're skilled. You know this. You get used to it. And so, I, you know, I'd get used to it. And I'm just looking around. And, you know, if I know that I was going to have to go through some big laminated beams, I'm like, no, that's not going to work. I'm not going to sit there and try to worry about whether or not I can or can't drill through this laminated beam, whether it's permitted or not in a certain portion of the beam. You know, and sometimes it's inevitable, but I always um, looked at the possibilities of, of my routing. But more often, I would say 99.9% of the time, I'm always trying to situate the, the box, the receptacle. I'm going to the one that's the closest towards the panel. So if, if I were to walk into a room after it's been sheetrocked and I want to know where I think the home run goes, I probably know that it was more than likely going to be in the one that's, that, that's closest in the line of, of sight, if I'm standing at the box, to where I would get to the to the panel. Okay, Now, whether it has to be routed line of sight or not, it's irrelevant to me. I'm just saying, here's the box, there's the panel, this is the receptacle that's closest, so I'm going to feed this one. And that was always my mentality. You can do it however you want, but that's kind of how I did it. Some people always will feed the switch, and they know that it's always going to be, their home runs are going to be in the switch. Okay, nothing wrong with that. That's just, I didn't do it that way, but there's nothing wrong with that. Um, so anyway, I always start that way. And so, uh, also I was very anal about when you drill or board the holes, obviously staying in the center of the, of the, of the two by four so that I have an inch and a quarter on each side from the edge of the board hole to the edge of the framing member. Not the fact that it's, that it's, it is actually national electrical code requires it in 300.4, but because it allowed for me to pull it a little easier, the straighter that I could keep these holes. Now, granted, sometimes you have to go at angles because you have a short span, maybe in the corner where you have uh, stacked up uh, two by fours, trying to keep it as straight as possible. Or maybe even you angle towards the cavity between the two stacked up studs at a corner. And then I would always drill one in the middle so I could have kind of my peekaboo hole so that if I'm trying to go around the corner, I can see the cable as I'm working it around. Um, but I always went with the largest hole that I could do in order to still not you know, violate the issue of one and a quarter inches from the edge, right? And where, because of angles and where I had to do it, if I had to use nail plates, obviously you use the nail plates. Code requires it to use the nail plates. But I always tried to be very uh, studious in how I ran my things. And it doesn't take that much extra time. So, again, so the first thing I do is once we get everything laid out, everything's marked, I would start from the left, and I would drill my holes. And at that point, the helper... If you drill your holes right, and I'm going to talk about my brother in a minute because, again, I alluded away from how efficient he was, but I just wanted to prove a point here. My helper would get to the point where he could almost know how I wanted to run my wire based on my progression of how I drilled the holes. So if he literally followed my progression, he could see, based on where the holes were, where I expected the wires to be run. And it's, it becomes a beautiful thing. Now, sometimes you got to do things, and you know, again, but communication's key. But if you get a relationship with somebody, and it just becomes a beautiful thing when they can almost know what you're thinking, and that's kind of how it gets as an electrician and their helpers. Uh, and, and your goal is for that helper to someday to be able to do it as well. And so people say that electricians aren't educators to their helpers or masters shouldn't educate because that's not their responsibility. You know, that's bullshit. I'm, I'm going to be honest with you. I'm going to be straight with you. 
You should have the mentality as a leader, as a professional, to pass on your trade. Not worrying about somebody replace you, not worrying about whether or not they'll get promoted. But it's irrelevant. I wanted to make sure that the people under me knew as much, if not more, than me. Because the more they know, it makes my job so much easier. And if it makes your job easier, it's like you're making money and, you're, and it's just easy, right? You don't have to overly think it. The smarter they are, the more equipped they are. So that was always my mentality. Some people, again, are very uh, self-centered and they don't want to teach. I believe it's, uh, it's our job to teach. But again, some disagree and that's fine. So anyway, back to my brother. So as I'm laying out these, these holes, my brother was very efficient. Because if we were in a crawl space, for example, we were down on the first floor. And I'm, again, I was talking to you about being in the first upstairs. But um, my brother was very efficient in a sense that if he knew the way this, the, this, the, the floor joists would run, then he might get to one receptacle and he might drill straight down so that you can simply drop down and go over and then come up on an opposite wall, maybe a wall that's perpendicular depending on what Joyce is so that he didn't have to drill around the studs and do a corner. So if you were measuring it right, you could get to that receptacle, that one, and then the hole went down below it. Then if you were pretty decent and you knew how far that was, you could just measure out some NMB and you just poke it down that hole and, again, wrap it around the box, wrap it over it once and then poke it into the box, and then it just kind of hangs down. And so... Then the box that's on the other wall that's perpendicular, you drill a hole straight down. So that's where that one that you stuck down is going to come up, and then you just continue on down the wall because those studs might run um, a certain direction, and so it's much easier just to drop down, and again, there's no studs to drill. But then since you're now running down the other wall, all of those floor joists are now, you'd have to drill them all, so you might as well drill the studs while you're up there. So then he would just drill the studs. And the neat thing about the drill that was on that extension is that when you positioned it against your leg as you're drilling, you could really make all those holes the same. It's hard, you know, harder to do it when you have a cordless and you're doing it because you could go up and down, up and down, up and down. It's, unless you snapped a line or you went through and marked the line, um, it can be, you know, it takes a little time to eyeball it. Uh, but boy, man, those extension drills on the Milwaukee with the right angle and a little six-inch uh, auger bit, and it usually was like a three-quarter auger, so a, you know, a good-sized hole uh, so that it doesn't catch the sheathing and rip the sheathing. It's a decent hole. Um, then, you know, it was just easier to just pop those holes through the, through the studs. Uh, and again, but that was the amazing thing. As you got better, you actually are on the second floor, and you know what it looks like underneath you. You know how the, the, the joists or the floor joists run. Or if you're on the first floor, it's the ceiling joists. You know how they run. So, again, that dictated how he would lay out his room. And, of course, if you were pulling it along and you saw the hole going down and you saw a hole over there on the perpendicular wall coming up, then, you know, then you knew what to do. And you knew how much NMB to pull off and stub down. Um, now, obviously, that's not the precise way because you might have an extra foot or two. But, again, waste not, want not. I would always use those extra foot pieces for pigtails. So we would always take those uh, and uh, throw them in a, in a pile uh, because we're going to use those for pigtails later anyway so that we don't waste anything, okay? It's just, you know, but you can get a good estimate, maybe a good arm's length, you know, six-foot span from tip to tip of your fingertip, 
depending on who you are. And again, it's just kind of things that we would do. And then I'd go around the room and you just follow this logical flow. Uh, and then you get to the switch box and then you drill up and then, you know, through the top plate and then you, you have a light and they just know. And if that switch right there says S has an S1 uh, and an S1 uh, or just an S, then they know that that's going up to the ceiling and it's going to be a 14.3 uh, because you're going to have a fan and you're going to have a light. Um, and it's pretty much follow that process. Um, and maybe you're doing that back bedroom and now you're coming out into the hall and maybe there's a receptacle in the hall. I'm just going to pick up that hall. Okay. Very, usually you're not even going to use that. Now that brings me to what people will ask me, how many receptacles and devices would you put? Well, you know, let's, let's be practical in the sense that the national electrical code doesn't tell you how many. A lot of people want to say, well, I use this rule of a 15 amp circuit and 120 volts that it's 1,800 watts or 1,800 VA, then I don't want to exceed that. So if I know that, that, you know, if I know this, then I'm like, okay, well, I'm not going to, I'm going to use 180 VA per per receptacle, then I can only put this many. Um, That's commercial. That's not residential. There's a lot more diversity in residential because there's usually a lot more receptacles for a given area. Whereas in commercial, you don't really have any rules for where you put receptacles other than what the engineer specifies. So obviously, they put a receptacle on a a commercial drawing at this location. It's probably going to be used. In a residence like a bedroom, I'm going to have receptacles spaced uh, at the maximum at six feet from any opening like a doorway and then another one 12 feet away so that no point along the wall line is more than six feet from a receptacle. So that's in 210.52. So if and nobody ever spaces it out all the way because we've got to be due diligent in how we lay out a room. So it might mean that you put an extra receptacle in there just because the spacing is more conducive for the layout of the room and it looks a little better. You don't want to put a receptacle over in a tight corner. It looks just looks awful. And you don't want to put a receptacle behind the door because nobody's going to use it. You want to space it out. Since you can come out six feet, the door is not six feet wide. So think about coming out a little bit past where the door would end. Again, things to think about in your layout. Don't just be a robot and lay things out in a certain way that looks kind of crappy. I mean, you have to think about your layout. Again, take a little pride in it, and you know it'll lay out fine. Um, so, at the end of the at the end of the day, laying laying out the room and and, and laying everything out and 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 putting everything out so that when you're drilling, everything just kind of kind of kind of flows. And of course you're remembering at this point, you you're in your mind you're thinking again, how many receptacles? So, if you use the theory of 180 VA on a 15 amp circuit per receptacle, and we're not even talking about the luminaires, um, then it says, you know, then you don't put more than 10. Well, I'm going to be honest with you, um, a 15 amp circuit, uh, a lot of times I would put as many as 12 items. So, I would put maybe all of the bedroom receptacles and I would pick up the ceiling fan and the ceiling light in that room and I might pick up a a hallway receptacle so I might have six uh, plus the the luminaire plus the ceiling fan so six seven eight pick up the receptacle in the hall nine uh you know and, and be honest with you that might uh that might be it I might pick up the lighting in the hall so that'd be nine ten eleven if there was two lights in the hall or something like that um but then I would stop and then I would run the next bedroom, and I pick up, I pick up everything. And maybe in that next bedroom, I'm picking up all the receptacles and the lighting. But then maybe the bathroom is right there, 
So then I might pop up if it's a master, I might pop in and I'm going to pick up the lighting over the vanity and I might pick up the uh, exhaust fan that's in the ceiling. You know what I'm saying? And again, you kind of got to look at your layout, but when it comes to the numbers, there's so much diversity. If you go into a bedroom right now, go into your bedroom and what do you have? Maybe a lamp, maybe a TV. I mean, what do you really have? Now, again, there can be people that are extreme, but I'm saying in general, there's really not a lot of loads if you think about it. So there's so much diversity. So, you know, I'm not going to tell you what to do, but my, I would, I wouldn't, I never really shied away from putting as many as 12 or even maybe 13 items on a 15 amp circuit. You can agree to disagree. That's fine. Um, but I have no problem with it. Now you got to be careful because you'd be like my house. Okay, so again, due diligence, maybe, you know, think about these things, or maybe you look at the, I don't know how detailed you get, I never really looked at the families, uh, unless it was a custom home, I never really looked at who was going in there, Um, but for example, take my home now, I have a studio, which was a, uh, well actually this is a den, and you know, and I have a media room, which was a bedroom, and I converted. Um, You might think about those type of things if you have an area that could get some heavy use, like a den. I realize that people in a den would probably going to have some computers and things like that. Probably never to the extent that I'm using mine, which is my studio with my lighting systems and everything. Um, but I'm probably going to be slimming back a little bit on that. I probably put you know eight or nine things plus the you know the lighting and be done. Um, there's no rule. Um, the only rule we have in the code is about balancing out our brand circuits, right? And you have to balance it out. We don't want to have 15 things on one and five on the other. We want to kind of, because we want to balance these loads out in a panel. So just do your due diligence, uh, but there's no rule. Some people have their own rule. They say, I'm going to put, I'll put 12 things and that's it. And if it's a 20 amp circuit, they say, I'll put 14 things and that's it. You know, that's, that's up to you. The difference is 2400 VA for 12, for a 20 amp versus 1800 for a 15. Again, these aren't continuous loads. Um, they're not going to be uh, designated as continuous loads. Um, they might be left on three hours or more because your family leaves the lights on. But again, there's so much diversity. Um, the only thing I will tell you that this becomes an issue is if you're doing a bedroom and it is loaded with recess cans. So recess cans or other lighting is a fixed load, right? Whatever the wattage is, of course, now we have LEDs, so it's, you know, it's not as big a deal. But back when I was doing it, there, you know, incandescence and all, you know, if it's if it's a hundred watt lamp, it's it's pulling out a hundred watt lamp, you know. So again, it doesn't take you long to say, well, if I have a hundred watts, and and I'm doing that, you're like, well, you know what? That's that could be a problem because I am now creating a situation where I have a hundred watts, and I'm pulling almost an amp here. Just when that at 0.83, I'm, I'm pulling almost an amp for that one light being on. Doesn't sound like a lot. But if I've got a bunch of recess cans in there, it can add up. And now you were to introduce loads on the receptacle at the same time, it could be a problem. So, again, with the advent of LEDs and things like that, the drivers, uh, less because now you've got luminaires that are like 13 watts and you know, things like that. Big different than when I was doing it. Um, and again, most things are phasing out the LED, I mean, the um, incandescence and whatnot. Um, so again, things to think about. That's, you know, that's why I love this trade. You know, just even residential wiring, there's so many things that you do to tickle the mind, even in residential. And 
again, commercial is great, but you're following a blueprint. Residential, I'm, I'm literally making it up as I go. Um, and I'm analyzing everything, my home runs, where I'm going to put things, nailing up boxes. It's also the beautiful thing of being able to, you, you're in control, right? You're making the choices. I'm choosing to put this here. Unless, of course, it's a custom home and they're giving you, but they're going to, they're going to weigh heavily on your expertise when you, when they ask you, should this, this, or this be done? Um, but it's, it's a beautiful thing and I just still love it. And some people say, well, houses are just too easy. Um, no, because I've seen some nightmare houses, right? And so, again, always a challenge. Um, and you can make it as fun as you want. You create your own little challenges and, that you can do, a little competitions between you and your helpers or your crew or whatever that to make it more challenging as long as they don't cut any corners and things like that because we, we don't want that. So, anyway... Um, I'm sorry I digress, and people that don't like when I do that, I, I apologize, but it's just, it's just me. I can't help it. I have a bad case of ADD, and I've always got to be you know, going. It's you know excited about it, and I still get excited about it. I wish I had a house to rough in this week. I just I, I, I love the smell of wood chips Okay, when you're drilling them, you know what I'm saying? All right, anyway, so... Um, it, so, I've, you know, you drill your holes is a logical method. You flow, you flow, you flow around and you'll work your way around the same way you did your boxes. And again, I always would get back to my home run and I would drill my holes down or drill my holes up. Uh, and again, the, the, when I'm pulling the wire, you look and you see that this is a home run and you know, it's going up or it's going down. Okay. And it's just, it, you know, I can't really get into too, you know, all the details cause every house is different. You know that, but if you go with it under a logical flow, then it just makes it so much easier, right? So I've drilled all my holes, right? Everything's in. I'm not cutting anything in yet. I'm just poking the wires in the box, things like that. Um, and always have that Sharpie with you. And so the, that, you know, when your helper's pulling it, for example, um, that they can also mark something. If you've transferred something onto the stud, that needs to be transferred on the box. For example, if I'm pulling uh, from point A to point B and I'm coming through a, a switch box and maybe I have a source coming in, a, sub, a feed coming in, but then I have a three-way 14-3 uh, going out and then maybe I have another 14-2 in there that's going up to the light. Unless it's obvious, then sometimes you know they'll take the Sharpie and actually write on the 14-2 that's going up to the light, they'll write on it leg or light leg or they'll do something in it, right? Now, me and, me and my brother were unique. Uh, I, I mean, I'm not going to say it's unique. Uh, everybody probably does this. We would actually use our side cutters, and we would put notches on our, our you know, two notches, three notches, or whatnot uh, on our sheathing, you know, just at the end, because you're going to cut that off anyway, and pinch it if we were trying to, to designate, for example, the feed coming into the box. And that was really the main one. Because when you start making things up and you get a bunch of wires in a box, again, you can do, you can start separating them, right, and do that. But if you took the end of it, N and B fourteen two, for example, and you grabbed it with your clients and just kind of crimp, crimp, crimp three little three little notches in it, it's also going to transfer down into the insulation of the conductor, right? So when I'm cutting in the box, I'm cutting it in. Those indents are still going to be there when I'm looking at the black and the white, right? So as I'm cutting it out, I know exactly which one's my feed. So I can take it when I'm cutting it in. I can separate that and put all the equipment grounds together and, and work all the neutrals together. And, 
it's just little things like that 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 you do so that you're communicating. And if you get a, a helper that you're really in tune with, they're going to know it too. They're going to know all these things, and it, and they can make up the boxes. And, and again, uh, there's an art to making up boxes, art to making it look really neat. Uh, there's an art to making sure that you're going to have at least six inches of conductor that comes into the box, right? And so that there's enough to make it up. And nothing I hate more than when people bring their equipment grounds into a box and they use those crimps and they cut them off too short. Remember, the code says that the conductors entering the box have to be at least six inches from the point of entry, okay? Um, and not going too deep and, and when it's a bigger box. But at the end of the day, that also applies to the equipment granite conductors. So stop skimping on them, okay? If I was an inspector, when I was an inspector, I would really harp on people and say, that's too short, all right? Now, of course, if it's a four-gang box, three-gang box, a little different than, you know, but at the end of the day, give me enough conductor to be able to make my, my splices up and be able to make it look nice and neat so that I can tuck those wires and everything back in the box so it's nice and neat. It's going to pay dividends when I go to trim it out. Because if I push all of those in the back and I got enough room to get it all back to the back, then, you know, the sheetrocker is going to sheetrock it and mud it and get mud in the box. And I don't want to get stuff. And, of course, you got the guys, the sheetrocker is going to come with the little roto zip and they're going to they're going to cut out your box. And you don't want them to nick your wire insulation and all this kind of stuff. So get it really tucked back in there good so that you don't have problems on the trim out, right? I don't want any additional problems. I want this job to go smooth. So if I do a little planning up front, then I don't have to worry about it. All right, so I've laid out everything. I pulled all my wires. You staple them. Again, don't staple them to the daggone. It's almost like the N and B is driven into the wood. You know, always up front, I'd always go over, you know, with my helpers uh, or even with my journeymen, to be honest with you. Uh, I would say this is what I want to staple it. This is how I want all my staples to be. Okay, now again, you can't monitor everybody, but I just don't believe in overdriving them. It's simply there to hold it in place, keep it in the center of the of the stud, right? So it wasn't about driving it home, really. It's it's about making sure that you drive it just to the point that it touches the NMB or right before it touches the NMB was perfectly fine. Okay, um, so anyway. Kind of a little lesson on that. You know, overdriving it can cause you more problems than not. Uh, and so, anyway, laying everything out. And then once we drill all those holes and you're laying out everything, then we go back with the home runs. Um, and we know where the home runs are going to be. But before I even did all that, you know, in laying out the house, I made sure before we pulled home runs that there was no loose ends. Okay? So I would always, as I'm drilling and as he's pulling... I would always kind of tell the helper in my mind, like, okay, look at what you just pulled and make sure that you know where you're ending, okay, and make sure that it all ties back to where the home run was going to be, okay? Just consciously in your mind, be aware of it. And then when you go into the next room, always have that in your mind. Now, after a while, that just becomes second nature, and you don't really have to worry about it. Everything kind of loops, 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 and you know where you're doing. But early on, you have to make it a conscious effort to, to, to examine that. Uh, if you're new in the trade or you're new or you're maybe you've worked for somebody else, but now you're on your own, the last thing you want to do is run into a situation where you screw something up and you don't have something. So something is, is dead deadheaded in, in the wall. You, you're not feeding it. Okay. Now there's ways we can fix that. But at the end of the day, you don't want to have that. Okay. So you want to make sure everything's tied together. And the first couple houses are the, you know, you really want to focus on that. 
But as you get into it, it just becomes second nature. And you you know this. You just start laying things out, and you know everything's connected together, and you're not going to leave any dead ends. Okay? Um, So once we did that and made sure everything was tied together and everything was done and everything's marked properly, um, then we would focus on the home runs. Right? And now here's the interesting thing with me. You could do it differently. Um, Once that I trusted my helpers enough to cut in boxes, right? And I'm sure you do too. And But we made it so clear in that box by crimping the wire or, or markings on the sheathing, uh, things like that, or identifying the studs, that I had no worries for that. Now, once they do that, then uh, either or I was cutting in, the next phase was the home runs. Um, so when somebody's starting to cut in, now I have somebody focusing on the home runs and getting them back to where the panel's going to be. And that means that they had to focus on the routing and the drilling the holes and being very aware of how they're going to get it um, because I was more focused on the layout and defining where the home run's going to be so that once the, the somebody could continue to work, right, they could continue to start cutting in and laying out or doing all that, now we can focus on the home runs and getting them back to the panel location, wherever the panel's going to be, drilling the holes, figuring the routing back, because now the mission is, is less complicated because they know where the home runs are going at all of the boxes, right? So they're going to make their route and get the home runs and try to find a common way to get it from point A to point B, and then they can focus on getting them to where the panel's going to be. Now, of course, they're going to come out to the panel, Panel's going to be mounted, and we're going to put that between the, the, the studs. And, and uh, so you're going to bring it over or whether or not they're coming up from below, whatever. And they're going to come down, and you're going to go past the panel. You're going to go down to the floor. And all of these here. Now, personally, um, and you can do this. Um, some people did and some people didn't. Um, on it, when I knew which home run was what, I would actually write on the end with a Sharpie what it was, um, bedroom, this, 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 and I would write on it. Granted, that's going to be stripped off. I get it. But I always had a habit of writing it down so that I knew what it was um, when I was doing it. Of course, if that's not really for labeling the panel, because, again, I could label the panel, you know, once we have power and we're doing a trim out and, you know, that type of thing. But for me, um, I always labeled it on the sheathing when I bought that home run there, okay? Um, that was just me. Now, if you forgot once or twice, that's fine. Um, but I, it's something that I always did. Now, for me, I never put it on the upper portion of the NMB because I didn't want my I didn't want the customer to see it. I don't I didn't like the writing to be on the NMB. But I've seen some houses where people do that. I don't think it's very attractive. But again. That's just kind of what I would do to identify it. I would write it on. And a lot of the NMB today will actually have on there where you could circle what things are. It's actually on the NMB. Um, but, again, I would just kind of note that. It's not saying you should. I'm just saying I, I would do that, the home runs, um, as you're pulling them. And you get it over there. You know where it went, so you would denote that. Right? You don't have to do that, but I'm just saying that's something I would do. And you're saying, well, that's just anal. That took a little extra, that took too much time. Not really. I'm on the job. It, I'm pulling the home run anyway. I know where it's coming from. So, again, you do whatever you want. That's kind of what I did. Um, and it would be beneficial for me later. So as I'm cutting in that panel, and now I'm putting that NMB in, I would cut the end off, 
that has the markings on it because I'm putting that one in. And so once I put that one in, once I got it in, then I would take the small end with the marking on it. I would take the conductors out of it and I'd leave the sheathing and I would slide it over the black and white or the black. If I was going to cut in the panel, um, I would slide it over the black and then I would, you know, bend the end of the black up and wrap it around it. So that's kind of now an ID tag that's on there. And the reason I do that is because sometimes in my panel, I wanted to, you know, how I wanted my panel to be situated, where I want the circuit breakers to be and things like that. Um, it, it, again, depending, it's really important when I did custom houses, not so much in a spec house, but it's just kind of things I did. You don't have to do it. It's fine. But I did it and it was an ID tag and it kind of helped me. I knew what was there. Okay. And when cutting it in, I also could identify it pretty quickly. All right. If I want to do that, rather than run around the house with the with the you know tester and and have somebody cut something off in the panel, and you know I kind of knew what was there, so I did that a lot. Um, anyway, you can do what you want. Um, so when we cut the panel in, I would always you know cut my panel in. Now my helper would be either or or, or my helper cutting the panel in if it was pretty much a spec house, you know house. It's not a big deal. Um, pretty easy to do. Um, but they would be up cutting everything in. And then somebody would shift gears and start working on the panel. And, of course, if you're a one-man show, you're doing all of this, and you're doing it kind of just like this in sequences. But I was, you know, I'm talking about a two-man show or things like that. And so I'd start cutting in the panel. They're up working on cutting in all the boxes, making sure all the ceiling fans are, everything's done, you know, everything, that part of it. So I can focus on cutting in the panel and making it as neat as possible. Again, that's, to me, that was my signature. That was my um, cutting that panel in, making sure everything looked good in the panel, routed away from live buses, uh, making everything or potential they will be live. They're not obviously not live in the rough end, but putting everything in so that it's nice and neat. All the the equipment grounds, uh, all of the neutrals, everything uh, you know, except for the neutrals that obviously would go on AFCIs, so they would be inside of that sleeve identifying sleeve that I cut off. And I put the neutral in the hot in it, and then I wrapped around it the the excess uh, in the panel because again that was you know that's an extra ID that I had there just saves me time on the back end. Um, it's just it, it was just the way I did it, and it became very efficient. And I love the look of a well cut in panel. Not so much you spend so much time that you actually have people look at it and go, Jesus, did you make any money on that job? If you're really efficient, it it doesn't take a lot to be neat, right? and how you're riding, and there's enough space in these cabinets to be able to do it and be neat and efficient, um, and they provide you enough lugs. Remembering, again, as you should know, uh, the grounding conductor is only one per lug, but equipment grounds can share lugs as long as they're the same size equipment ground. Of course, you don't want to put a 14 and 12 under lug. There's no way you can torque one to a, uh, a 14 if you've got a 12 in there as well. Um, because of different diameters, obviously. Um, all these things that you, you think about, right? And you take for granted. Like for some people, they like to have all their double poles at the top and all their single poles at the bottom. Um, some people like it vice versa. I'd be honest with you, not that it really matters, but I always like to put my larger loads at the top, closest to the source at the uh, the um load side of the main breaker. It's just, it was just me. It's just what I did. Um, and then, of course, I would situate all of the lesser loads towards the bottom. Uh, and so it did help to have things identified. So, uh, you know, as I'm cutting things in. Um, again, you don't have to. 
I'm just making recommendations. Um, and so once that's all in, and then I could focus on at that time getting my uh, whether or not I, you know, I had my grounding electroconductor that I had to run. In this case, most of the time we had ground rods. Very little time did we ever have UFERS that we in a residential um, where I got in there in time that we could access to have anything to the um, of the UFER. Uh, and back then it wasn't done that often. Um, and of course, way back then, it was no longer if it was available versus now when it's present, you have to utilize it. Back then, it was if it's available, and obviously, if it's not available, it's not available. Um, so again, it gives you the time to think about. And uh, if there was on a slab, for example, and I was going to have a U for ground, it seemed, and I did have occasions where we had some houses that did. I was always seemed to be enough in the project that I could get a piece of rebar turned up close to wherever the panel's going to be. Or I can, you know, if I knew I had the project, and again, you don't always know that you're getting the bid, and so you might come in later. Um, but it just seems for me that I always seem to coordinate it. Um, but in a lot of cases, a lot of the homes we did in Virginia, they were on, they were on basements. And, it, it, you know, in this case, it was, just, it was just, you know, ground rods. And so... You know, we would take the, uh, the six-gauge copper. It doesn't have to be larger than that in accordance with 250.66A. And it wouldn't matter whether it was a 1,000-amp service or a 200-amp service. It doesn't matter if it's ground rods. And so we would run the six solid, uh, you know, out in uh, just, just what we would, we would do. And we run it out, and uh, we would run it, and we would, we would curl it out uh, because at this point, a lot of times, um, there's still backfill and... You couldn't put the ground rod in and then have them push backfill around it because that really wouldn't meet the code. The code says the ground rod's got to be driven. So at this point, we would just poke out the grounding electroconductor and, again, hope nobody, nobody steals our, our copper. Um, but if they did, not that, you know, not that overtly big deal. Um, we, could, we could manage. We could, we could get something else out if we had to and, and accommodate it. Um, but we would do that, and we'd get, at least get it poked out so that we're ready uh, to be able to, to do our ground rods when we come back for the, uh, at a later stage. Um, maybe it's because at this point we're going to get temporary power, then we're going to come out and drive the ground rods. If it is all finished and the grade's all finished, then, yeah, go ahead and finish. Yeah, get those ground rods driven because now um, – you want to make sure that it's not going to slow up your, your service that you could get temporary power on. So then you come back. For us, we would come back for temporary power. Uh, we would come back and we would simply, the circuit that's running, let's say, to the laundry, we would put the receptacle in it, put the GFCI in it. Uh, because, again, in, in our case, since it was temporary under you know 590 and it's still part of a construction site, it required to be GFCI protection. Now, of course, now it's, GFCI protection in the laundry room area anyway. But back then, that's what we would do. And that would be our receptacle. And we put that one breaker in the panel. And uh, it was easy to identify it because we had the sleeve that said laundry circuit on it. So, again, pretty, pretty easy to do. Um, and that's a benefit, especially if somebody's going to send a guy out there real quickly to get it ready for the uh, uh, temporary service. Um, then that's a, that's a great thing. Or, or temporary power into the house, or getting power at least onto the house type of scenario before we trim it out, okay? Um, every, everywhere's different, so I'm just giving you kind of some of the things that we would run into. Uh, but if that's the case, then you need to have your grounding electrode system in place, okay? 
So and that does save you an additional trip to the to the site. So if again, uh, if you can get those ground rods driven, get them driven and finish up your grounding electrode system. Uh, the reason I say that because there's some people that rough in and they don't even have the service entrance cable in yet or the service entrance conductor. They don't have that in yet. They have just the the, the um, connector poked out. Um, they don't even have the meter on yet, right? They just have the wire stuck out. Again, your air is going to be different. Your timing is going to be different. The contractor's timing. You, you might be in a subdivision where you're very intimate. You're working in that subdivision almost every day. And maybe they don't even have all the siding on yet. So you obviously can't you know, put the meter on or something. So it, it could come in phases. So just be prepared to do it in phases. So I'm just kind of giving you, you know, some ideas. Uh, I tried to get as much complete as I could so that if I had to come back and make a quick trip, for example, to put a breaker in to power a receptacle on site so that the carpenters could start, you know, because then the temporary is gone, or maybe you did this on a generator, and now the, the, the sheet rocked, you're not ready to trim it out yet, but now they're going to start putting cabinets in everywhere or the trim people need to get to work. And now your contractor's griping because, look, I need to get power on. Okay, so I might come in there and, you know, the meter gets put up, the grounding all's done. And I might put, uh, I'm not ready to trim it out yet, but I'm going to put a breaker in and I'm going to trim out that one receptacle, let's say, that's uh, feeding the, uh, the laundry receptacle. And now they've got power they can plug into and, and do what they need to do. And it buys me a little time so that I get some of the other stuff, people out of my way. I should say that. Get, I don't want to work over people, right? As an electrician, be honest with you, I always like to be the last guy in when it comes to the rough in. And I like to be the last guy in, trade in when it comes to the, uh, the finish. Because it seems to me that when I'm the first guy in, the duct guys or the plumbing guys potentially damage my 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 wire or damage my something of mine, you know. And I just prefer to have them have theirs in it. I'm not going to say that they're more brutal, but again, I I just rather be the, the last guy in. To be honest with you, um, that's just me. You do whatever you do, and sometimes the timing doesn't dictate that. You got to do what you got to do. But that's me. I like to be the last guy in. I like to be the last guy in when it comes to the trim out so that I can get in. Everybody's out of the way. I can hang my ceiling fans, my luminaires, put all my switches, receptacles in, breakers in, cut that, trim that panel out. Uh, and I, that's the way I like it. Uh, everybody's different, but that was me. Um, other pet peeves. So now we kind of move through the rough end, trimming out, panel, grounding, get everything done. Now we come back, usually it can be three, four, five weeks later maybe. And they call you, and then you've got your temporary power in, or you put the power in for them so they can do their thing. Now they say, the, the general contractor says, okay, I'm ready for you to trim it out. All right? I usually ask them, I'll say, okay, what stage are the other trades at? They'll say, well, the plumbers are done. Mechanical guys are pretty much not going to be in your way. But I want them pretty much done because, again, i got to make my connections up to air handlers and all this kind of stuff. So uh, I'll ask, is the outside AC unit set? They go, yes, it's set and all this, so I kind of know what I got to do with my disconnect and flex and all this kind of stuff. Um, so just questions you ask. You know, I don't want to make multiple trips. I want to get it done. So you know, if you have a good relationship with the uh, contractor general, which you should always strive to have a good relationship, don't have an adversive relationship with it, always try to get along. Uh, you don't want to come across as a pushover. You don't want to come across as too pushy. But, again, you want to be very professional. Treat it professional. That goes a long way to your look. 
So again, shirts and your logos and the way you carry yourself and the way you interact and you don't play around on the site, you don't shoot wire nuts all over this job site. Yeah, it's a job. Treat it as a job. You can have fun. You can have a lot of passion, but treat it as a job. It's a profession. We need to keep it noble. You can let the guys play around on the commercial, but you know, residential guys. Again, we get the we get the a lot of flack, but keep it professional. Take pride in it. Uh, Jay Grunberg is a great example of that. Does nothing primarily but his residential stuff. It's true professional. I love having him on my electrician live show, but a true professional, and he treats it as such. It's a profession. Be very proud of it. So, at any rate. I will qualify with the contractor that I'm ready. Maybe it's a set time that we have in our schedule. Uh, Jay likes to schedule things out. But again, I would make a call and say, and they say, hey, we're ready. I'd say, are you ready? They go, yes, we're ready, Paul. I would come in, and uh, that's the same kind of concept on a trim out that I would use uh, on the rough end. Um, I'd go in, and I'd do my walk around. But together, me and my helper at this point, we would carry in our receptacles, carry in our switches, carry in uh, all the stuff that we need for that day. Maybe this first day we're going to do all receptacles, all switches, um, and maybe the next day we're going to hang luminaires. Um, but, you know, I'd, I'd get in there first. And when we get in there, uh, and if we know that we're going to hang luminaires uh, on the second day, I would not bring them in on the first day simply because I didn't want anything to walk off the site. Now, I'm not saying you can't trust your site or, or maybe it can't be locked up or something like that. Or Personally, I did not take luminaires until it was the day I was hanging luminaires or ceiling fans. That was just me. You do whatever you want. Um, so uh, in the first day, for example, we're going to do cut-in. We're going to do cut-ins and all this, put in all the switches and, 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 nail, and um, uh, um, covers and, and everything like that. Um, I would go out and we'd go in with receptacles and I would start on the first floor and my helper would start on the second floor or vice versa. And we would go from room to room and we would literally walk around the room and drop a receptacle. I mean, they're ripped. They're, they're pretty sturdy. We drop a receptacle everywhere, the receptacle. Now, here's something that we did, just, just so you know. I used to have those painter aprons, the front, where you know, the ones that just hold the nails. Well, supposed to hold the nails. We'd get them for free at, at, um, or very cheap at the supply house. Personally, I'd have, when I do a trim out, I'd always have two of them. One on the front, they're both are tied around me, but I'd have one on my back, around backwards, and I'd have one around front, front right? Now, in the front, I'd have just uh, as many receptacles that I could jam in the front, and in the back, I would have receptacles in the back. And on, from reaching around the left side, I would have single poles. And around the right side, I'd have three ways. Okay, that's just me. You do it differently. Um, but when I, I would tie those on, it's kind of what I would do as a trim out. And I can't say I did it religiously, but I always used the apron. And I had a spare apron. Now, sometimes people can get even bigger ones that hold a lot more. But anyway, I would fill it up with you know, a certain number of receptacles and, and that type of thing. And my helpers used to fill up both of the front with receptacles, um, and, and then he would fill up the back with receptacles because he said I can always just carry a box of switches around with him, single poles, right, in his hand. Okay, no problem. But I would go around the room and I would drop receptacles so that I would go around in a quick wave and I'd have a receptacle laying by every receptacle box around the room. And at the switches, I would, you know, put switch. Now, I never, I, I can't say that I always drop the switches. Um, 
what I would do with switches is I would real quickly pull the wire out of the box and I would identify what kind of switch it is and I would just pull one of the wires and I'd take one of the dog ear loops from the switch and I would put the the switch on uh, you know, feed it over it and, and then just bend it up to its closed loop and it just hang there. So the switch is hanging there to be cut in, right? That That's kind of what I would do. And if it's a three-way, you know, I had a three-way box in my hand, then I would hang a three-way on it because you can obviously tell what's a three-way, so the black, red, and white or whatnot. Um, so I would, you know, hang it up and then I would go to the next room and I would literally lay everything out first. The reason I would do that is because then I want to take that apron off Right, so that then I could put on a different apron, and these are cheap, mind you. And I had a box. Be honest with you, I had a box with these aprons that already kind of had wire nuts in them and and things like that. Then I would tie that on, and then I would go around. I have my my you know should be all wire nutted by now. Be honest with you, it, it should already be done when you did the you know rough end. Um, but I would always have that a box you know with me just in case I needed them. And now I would go around the room and. When it came to the, the ones that were for receptacles, um, a lot of times, and it didn't start out this way. When I started out, you know, you get on your knees, and I'd have knee pads. I'd get on the knees, and we'd just scoop from receptacle, receptacle, receptacle. Then it was pretty, we would get one of these little, uh, little small, low, little, uh, like, benches, seats with, with wheels on the bottom. And we would sit on it. And it sat you down decent enough that where you could work, or like a bucket. But it was a bucket with wheels, Okay, it had like a caddy, and it um, and a lot of people did did that. Is they would have a little bucket with wheels on it, and they would sit on it, and they would slide up to the receptacle, and they would do the receptacle, and then they could just kind of roll to the next one, rather than tearing up your knees, right? But when I first started out, you know, we're young, we didn't care. So I mean, I was just going knees, get up and go to the next one, and then get down, and get up and go to the next one, and then get down, and that's fine. But again, you can get these nice little you know little seats with the wheels on it, and just wheel yourself around, and it's fine, okay? Now, let me do a little qualification here. Since it is the trim out, you got to be very careful because, again, if you're going to do this, if this, if they've already put in the finished flooring, God's sakes, don't mar up that floor. Um, so you need to be very conscious of that. So it might be something, if it's carpet, things like that, and these are nice wheels, then it wouldn't be a big deal. If it's a hardwood floor, um, you know, i got to be very careful with using one of these little wheeled seats, you know, uh, and when I'm doing it. Now, if it's a trim out, for example, where they haven't put the flooring down yet, and it's just, you know, wood floor or concrete floor, and they the flooring people are coming in last because they don't want to mar anything up, then that's okay. Uh, but depending on your timing, depending on the timing. If I get in there and it's a finished floor already, the last thing I want is where I trimmed out a switch or receptacle and one of the little pieces of copper that I cut off in order to go into the device falls onto the floor and now I'm scooting it along and it gets trapped underneath one of the wheels. I don't say it won't happen because Murphy's Law, it'll happen. And then what happens is that it ends up scratching the floor. And now if it's a deep enough gouge, guess who's responsible for that? You are responsible for that. So again, those wheels, those little wheel carts can be great. A lot of people use them in the rough end as well, cutting in the boxes uh, as well. But again, uh, be careful um, depending on your timing when you get in there. Again, you can, somebody will say that, no, it never happens. It happens. I've been in jobs where I the flooring was already down and I was putting in receptacles and switches. And I've been in jobs where because of the timing, I'm in there. And the flooring's not down yet. Uh, 
because they, they want to put it down last. Um, they don't want to take a risk of it getting stained if it's carpets or something like that. So um, it just depends on when you're in there. So obviously if the floor is still raw, it's not a big deal. But if it's finished, just just be careful. Um, I always tell people, you know, the little seat scooters, uh, check the wheels, make sure there's no sharp edges, make sure there's no, you know, anything that could damage carpet or catch on it, little hooks or, or a screw that got stuck up in it or whatever. Just be a little courteous. But there are these different things that can make the job a little easier that you need to, to think about. All right. So you're laying everything out, putting it in, cutting everything in. And it, okay, so it came to the to the point where you go around and you put everything in. And this is your, you're in the first day for me is making sure all the switches in, all the receptacles in, all the cover plates are on, uh, all the cover plates are neat. Uh, they're not all crooked. Um, making sure that I don't have fingerprints all over the place. Um, now again, I was probably a little ahead of my. Time uh, today, people use things like magic eraser and, and wipe off the fingerprints and things like that. Uh, but back then, I actually uh, used to use um, you know gloves, latex gloves, when we were putting on the the cover plates. And in some cases, in the high end homes, um, we put the the switches and everything in and receptacles in, and we wouldn't put the cover plates on at the same time. I know that sounds archaic. Um, we would put them on. Uh, we would slide the little gloves on. Um, but to be honest with you, I can't say we always did that because the guys were pretty good in not marring up the walls. I did have one occasion where a guy was uh, you know, putting in sconces in a really high-end home, and he just literally, this, first of all, they looked like crap, and secondly, there was fingerprints all over the wall, just, and he didn't care. And that's the only time I ever fired somebody, okay, um, But because he didn't care. But other than that, you know, you'll pick up your own rule. You know, you can be you. You know, you can put these on without getting fingerprints everywhere. And if you can, just make sure that you you wipe them off. But I did hear that that magic eraser that you can buy them in bulk at Costco's. You can get about ten of them in there. Give them to your electrician, and every time they put something in it, they see you know put fingerprints on the wall. Just run the magic eraser lightly around it, and it'll it'll get rid of those fingerprints. Okay, um, but just again, be good stewards. Again, people are paying good money for this house. They're paying you to do it. Um, it's not their responsibility to clean up after you. Um, which takes me to another thing. Whether you're in the rough-in or you're in the trim-out, after every day's work, clean up your mess. Don't leave it for somebody else. Okay, Clean your job. All right? Keep it clean. All right, so we put all the covers on and everything. So at that point, the next day was devoted to putting in luminaires, um, bar lights, sconces, uh, things like that. Um, that's what we really, ceiling fans, we were devoted to doing that because in the first day we're putting in receptacles and switches, any appliances, disposals, things like that that need to be done. We're doing all of those things. Now, depending on the size of the house, it might be two days to trim out, might be three days to trim out um, because you're going to have to cut in your receptacles outside um, depending on how due diligent you are, whether or not you just poke the NMB out or you actually cut those boxes out ahead of time uh, because if you put a box there, they probably, the siding people probably cut it out or the brick people obviously, you know, you poked it out and put a box on it so that they could actually brick around it. But if you were lazy and you just stubbed out the wire, then you're going to end up having to, to cut that out or chisel that out or, or, or roto zip out the box. Um, and then you run the risk of damage your NMB. So you have to think a little bit. But all those things take time. 
Um, and I'm not here to tell you that there's a perfect way to do it, but we tried to get as much of that stuff done on the first day of our rough in, I mean, our trim out, so that we could save the ceiling fans, luminaires, uh, all of that, that final stuff for the second day. And sometimes it would be the third day, depending on the size, um, that we had took more than a day to do the receptacles. I remember some of those 10,000-plus square foot houses that we did, um, we were trimming out for three and four five days because it's just so many luminaires, so many things to trim out, so many appliances to connect. Um, you'll figure it out. Um, but again, go in with a plan and uh, target it. But that was just some of the tips that I would do, laying out and throwing out the receptacles and making sure they're there so that you could really focus on putting them in and, and everything like that. Um, with that said, also, you know, a lot of times uh, in those uh, little fanny packs, you can also keep uh, one side for, uh, I think one of the helpers used to have the front he would have receptacles in it. But remember, you're throwing them all out, right? So when you're coming to put them in, all he would have in his pouches is cover plates. So he'd have tons of receptacle cover plates in one side, and the other side he'd have switch plates and things like that, all right? Um, trying to minimize the, the, the constantly having to go back and forth. To, but um, also something else that I would do, I should say, and again, I know I jump all around, and again, I'm, I shouldn't apologize for it because, again, it's just how I do it. If you don't like it, I don't really care. But I also, when I go around the room, I'm also taking a count. So I always had, um, and again, I always had a little notepad with me in my pocket. So that when I did a room, I would mark how, and I did this at the rough end stage, to be honest with you. I'd go around and I'd say, this room has five receptacles and two switches. Okay, so I'm always keeping count. So that when it's time to buy the material for the trim out, I had my little list of, okay, I need this many receptacles, this many covers, this many two gangs. And it was important for me because I didn't want to have an over amount. Now, you have a big enough shop, you might have just tons of them anyway. But I did not want to have an over amount. So I was always keeping track of what I had, right? Same thing when I'm trimming out the panel in a rough end. Um, I'm counting the circuits so I know how many breakers I need, whatever, and I'm writing them down in that little book. So I was notorious for having a little a, a, a book that I'd keep in my pocket, my back pocket, my little notepad. And um, I'm thinking of getting some of those made up and, and giving them away, which are just little notepads. You Obviously, you can get them anywhere. But I wanted to get some and maybe put some kind of logo on the front that's interesting for people, like Master Electrician or something like that, and give them away. And... Again, I'm a big believer in taking those notes and keeping those notes for that project. And so I would always keep the count of receptacles and cover plates and and what I need as I'm going through so that I kind of have a running list of what I need. I don't want to have to run back and make another count later. I'm always doing my count, keeping it up as I'm moving through, right? Just, you know, just something that I would I would do. Just something that 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 I would kind of kind of would do and i did have one guy that worked for me but actually would do that count and at the entry to that room he would write it on the side of a stud he would write um you know five five switch uh, receptacles he'd be five and then put the receptacle symbol and he would put two s1s or two s3s or whatever he would you know that way he could he could run around real quickly and and look at the entry to each room and and, and make a count me i personally had the little notepad with me that was just me all right, so that I knew what I needed when I went back to the job site to do my trim out. Okay, 
Um, I know some people will simply go to the trim out and then they'll walk around and do a count, but then that's a wasted trip unless you already got them all on your truck anyway. You do whatever you want to do. This is just little tips to, that save me time. I'm already there during the rough end. I'm already there, so I just kind of easy for me to just jot down bedroom, five receptacles, uh, two switches. Bedroom, what? You know, so, you know, that's just me. You can do it however you want. You can say, Paul, that's over anal. It's just a waste of time. Whatever. I had some people say, on my grill, do I foil line the grill or do I just let the grease build up on the plate and then I can scrub it off with a, with a spatula? And for me, I'd rather foil it simply because I can just wrap up the foil. And then the people say, well, that's a waste of time. It takes me all of three minutes to do it. it whatever you want to do, don't let anybody tell you the way you do something is wrong. You tell them to kiss your butt. You do what you do and you be you. And you do what you're used to doing, and you want to do it so that it becomes, uh, becomes habitual, right? That you do it the same every time. And again, once you do that, then you reduce the risks of forgetting something uh, or making errors the more repetitious that you get, right? Um, and the more you do things, the less it becomes stressful because then you get familiar with it and there's nothing uh, that you're going to run into that surprises you. You're going to get some unique situations, but you're not going to get into those dramatic surprises that ruin your day type of thing, right? All right, so that's kind of how we would do it. And, you know, that's how we would finish everything off and then tidy it off. And again, this has been a long podcast, an hour and 40 minutes. Hopefully you stuck in there. There's a lot of you loyal listeners out there that do stick into this. Um, but if you want to get better at residential, um, think about, and, and you don't mind reading um, and watching a lot of videos, we have a residential course that's available uh, at the Electrician's Academy. Now, the Electrician Academy is a, is a new division of our Electrical Code Academy, and it's designed to be very focused on tr- a, um, a skill set whether it's residential, commercial, industrial, uh, grounding and bonding, which I believe everybody should take a course on grounding and bonding. You'd be surprised at the things that I see. Um, so it's all available over on uh, electricalinstructor.com. And, or you, of course, the courses are also available on Master the NEC as well. But again, if you want to get into the academy, um, it's going to be a unique atmosphere uh, where we're going to have some special sessions, special classes as the students grow. Um, and it's pretty neat. But if you really want to learn more about the room by room by room and the tips and nuances for residential room by room by room, that's an awesome program. And it's not expensive. It's $335. And the, the knowledge that you get from it Room by room and, and concepts of circuit layout and, and theories and design is really a, it's really a great program. And I'm not just saying it because I sell it, but I, I also helped write it. So I, it's a lot of good stuff. Blueprint reading, tips, tricks, things like that are all encompassed in it. Um, it talks about almost every aspect of residential wiring. Uh, and it intermingles code. So in the process, you really learn the code. And you really need to know the code. It's a minimum safety standard. So it's, it's an awesome program. We hope you'll look into it uh, and give it a look. It, again, it's over on electricalinstructor.com as well as masterthenec.com. So I want to thank you folks for listening to today's show. I, hopefully you got something out of it. Until next time, folks, stay safe, be safe, and God bless.